As you are finding your seats, you would also find your Bibles and turn back to Philippians chapter 4. This week we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7, page 982 in the Pew Bible. You'll have to excuse my appearance for a week or two. It's officially beard season. Um, so it takes me a little while to get past the stage of looking just unkempt and dirty. Uh, so I apologize. Uh, give me a few weeks. Philippians chapter 4. Last week, we looked only at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. A climactic double imperative in this letter that is all about gospel-generated joy. Paul commands us to rejoice. He says, Christian, this is your obligation. This is your duty. Be happy. Be glad. And if that doesn't bother us enough, he tells us how often to do that. Always. Be happy. Always. Be glad. Always. I think a pretty challenging command based upon the fact that so many of us struggle to be joyful. But if you think about it and understand it in the way that Paul intends it, it is actually a comforting command. Because Christian, God's desire for you is joy. His desire for you is that you be happy and glad, not miserable and morose. Truly, his commandments are not burdensome. What a wonderful law this is. Be happy. I want you to keep in mind the goodness of God's commandments in general, the goodness of that command, as we turn to the next command. Don't be anxious about anything. So we've got verse 4, be happy always. Verse 6, worry never. And some of you are getting anxious right now just considering the command not to be anxious. But take it how it's intended. God is good. God is good. God is good. That means that everything he wants for us, everything that he does for us, for those who are his, is good. Therefore, his law is good. Therefore, what he tells you here is very Good. God wants you to experience joy. One of the main obstacles to that joy is everyday anxiety and worry. So to help you in the command to be joyful, he's also going to command you to be trustful. We're going to see that, yes, worry is a sin. Yes, it's, it's unbelief. Uh, but the point of this passage is not, as we sometimes use it, to make you feel awful and worry more about the fact that you worry so much. The point of the passage is, is to comfort you and encourage you to see that God is good and trustworthy and to show you what to do with the anxiety that you do have. Because you do have it. And listen, if you think about it, you should have it. Because the world is very broken. There is much uncertainty. There is much to fear. People get sick. Accidents happen, people die, jobs are lost, money runs out, relationships break down. We could spend a whole sermon just listing the things out there that you should probably be anxious about. So in a broken world, and not only that, in a broken world populated by broken people with sinful hearts, including yourself, pretty good reason to be anxious. So the question is not, are you anxious? You are. Let's just be honest up front. The question is not, do you have reason to be anxious? You do. The question is, what do you do with that anxiety that you do have? How do you respond to that anxiety? Last week, we looked at how one of the main ways we rejoice in the Lord is by thinking on the Lord. Remember back to chapter three, verse one, rejoice in the Lord. Very next verse warning them about false teachers who would lead them astray into wrong thinking about the Lord. Paul calls these men dogs and evildoers. Paul is very concerned with your thinking. So he says, rejoice in the Lord and be careful of these guys who are going to teach you wrongly about the Lord because your rejoicing and your thinking are so closely connected. Paul's concerned about your thinking because of 3 verse 8 of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Remember, that's eternal life. It is knowing God, John 17. It's knowing Christ. And of course, we know that means more than knowing about, but a knowing that includes loving and trusting Christ. And that is Paul's main desire for himself 
and his main desire for the Philippians that they may rejoice and that they may rejoice in Jesus by knowing Jesus, by thinking in the fullest sense of the term, rightly about Jesus, and then rejoicing in him and resting in him. Anxiety hinders you from thinking rightly about Jesus. And so Paul tackles head on this problem that we all struggle with. He knows that we are. It's dumb, but I couldn't stop thinking about a modified version of Come Thou Fount this week. We're prone to worry. Lord, I feel it. And what does that do? The same thing. It makes us prone to leave the God that we love, which ironically only compounds and increases the worry. Paul is after something better for us. Instead of anxiety, he wants And so he graciously tells us what to do and how this works. And I love how beautifully simple it is. So many of the books today start off with, I knew reading the Bible, but I wanted something more. I just wanted something more to experience this, that. I knew there was some sort of higher life. (laughs) Paul is so simple. No secret technique. No something new. No something more. Paul takes us back to basics. You want to war against your worry. You want peace. Pray. It's that simple. If you are understandably anxious about the chaotic uncertainty surrounding you, Paul says, pray. If you feel powerless, good, you are powerless. Paul says, pray. If you feel like you're not in control, well, good, you're not in control. Paul says, pray. Prayer is the secret. Some of you are disappointed right now. You're like, oh, here's the solution to my anxiety. Pray. Oh, okay. Is that really all that it is? Uh, Well, I hope by God's grace through his word to show you how profound prayer is and how privileged we are to be able to go before the Lord in prayer. I hope to show you how prayer is the solution to your anxiety, that anxiety that robs you of joy, and thus how prayer is a key a part of your pursuit of joy. So last week was thinking, meditation. Uh, Keep that in mind because it's coming again next week. Verse 8, think about these things. This week is prayer. Here's how you will find peace with God. In meditating on Him and spending time with Him in prayer. This is simply peace through prayer. There's other things that we've got to discuss as well. So a few other points we're going to see first in verse five. We can't skip over it. We're going to see that peace comes through reasonableness. I'll explain uh, what that means when we get there. Then we're going to focus more on the middle there in verse six with peace through prayer. And then finally, in our closing verses, we'll see most importantly how peace through prayer is ultimately and only peace through Christ. And yes, I'm sorry I couldn't help it. If you take those in reverse order, you've got CPR, right? To, to revive, uh, to raise again, to give life. It just happens. I can't avoid it. Uh, you find life, you find joy, you find peace here in Christ through prayer and then through this reasonableness, which we'll define in a second. That's our goal. Here's how peace comes. Let me read it. For you, just so we're not jumping right in the middle, let's pick up on verse 4. Let's read that again, and then we'll read through verse 7, focusing mostly probably on verse 6. But let me read for you first Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. This is what God wants to say to you this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. And we believe that it is through this word that you speak. So we ask now, as we have just sung, that you would speak, O Lord. Father, help me, please, uh, do what I am completely and utterly incapable of doing. Take your word and apply it to our hearts. Father, each one of us enters into this room with some degree of anxiety. Father, some in this room today come in with a great and heavy burden of anxiety. Bring comfort and encouragement through your word. Father, show us the beauty of Jesus Christ. Show the beauty of the gift 
of communing with him in prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to desire and delight in knowing him and spending time with him, Lord. Father, please help me in the preaching of your word. Help all of us in the hearing and the receiving of your word. Do all of this for your glory, Lord, and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so focusing on verse 6, but I don't want to skip verse 5. We'll try to make the first point for once a shorter one, but it's still important. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What does that mean? And why is Paul saying that here? Is he really just saying that like, he, he wants us to be reasonable, as in don't be excessive or don't be extreme or don't be ridiculous? Or like when I try to eat four whole chip cookies and Melissa has to say, be reasonable. Uh, Matthew. Is that, is that what Paul means? No, not, not exactly. If you were to compare different translations, some of you have something in front of you that might say something a little bit different. It's always wise to read different translations. And if you were to look at a bunch of them, you would realize this is a difficult word to translate. Most translations go with gentleness. Uh, some have graciousness. The King James has moderation, while the New King James jumped on board with gentleness. Well, that tells us in part that this is such a full word in the Greek that no single word in English can quite do it justice. It is reasonableness, but it's more than reasonableness. It is, I'm done saying that word, that's a hard one to say. It is gentleness, but it is more than gentleness. When you have gentleness in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, it's a different word than this word, right? This is not that word. So one of my favorite commentators, William Hendrickson, takes a little liberty and translates this word as big-heartedness. He says, let your big-heartedness be known to everyone. It's kindness and forbearance and considerateness and charitableness and mildness and generosity and gentleness and sweet reasonableness all kind of rolled up into one and so this big-heartedness gives us a little bit more information than just be reasonable and so in the very first line of his explanation of this verse Hendrickson introduces this verse by saying a Christian should cultivate an outgoing personality oh man right? <laughs> that is not what uh, an introvert wants to hear uh, but uh, I can do be reasonable uh, but Paul is saying a little bit more than that. And this is important to our understanding of the how of joy. What Paul is saying is that genuine Christian joy is not just inward focused joy. Right? So much of spirituality today is dive into yourself, uh, look within, uh, search down deep, find it in your heart. Now, what Paul is saying is that you don't find joy by concentrating on your need for joy. As we've repeatedly seen, and we'll see again at the end, the joy that we're talking about is first found looking up and outward. Right? There is a vertical orientation as we are directed, not inward, but upward. Joy is found only in Jesus. But it is also found looking around and outward. There is a horizontal orientation to joy. It is by focusing first on others. What Paul is actually, I think, saying here in 4 5 is just 2, 3, and 4 again. This is 2 verses 3 and 4. Counting others more significant than ourselves, looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Joy is found um, out, not in. In others, not in self. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 5. It's the same basic command as chapter 2, which makes sense in light of, of verse 2 of chapter 4. Remember our context. Conflict. He's telling these women to agree in the Lord, to think the same in the Lord. Well, here's how you are to interact with one another and love one another in every circumstance, including conflict. But not just one another. This is not just for Euodia and Syntyche or for us with believers. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Your big heartedness to everyone. Be known for this. Be known as someone who is characterized by such a kind other oriented heart. And paradoxically, you will find that as you, by the grace of God, do so as you take your attention off of yourself and turn it outward, it is there that you will begin to find peace. Personal peace is not found by focusing on your own person. 
That is not where you're going to find it. But it's by focusing on other persons. And this is so hard for us to get because we are sinners and sin by definition is to be focused first on self. Remember, it's described as the inward turn to be curved in on oneself. But not only that, we find ourselves as such sinners in a time and a place and a culture in which this self Focus and self-service, treat yourself, uh, follow your heart, uh, all of that mess uh, tells you and encourages you and praises this very thing. Find joy in yourself and focusing on yourself and doing and pursuing what you need to do and pursue. So both sin and culture are against you here. But I can confirm from both here in Scripture and from experience that it doesn't work. The more I focus on and obsess over myself, the more miserable I become. The more I pursue what my sinful, selfish heart tells me will bring me the most joy, the more I find the exact opposite. So this peace is not found inside in me. It's found first out there. And so the more that we learn to focus on the out there and to live for the out there, vertical first, God first, we're getting there at the end, the more we will find this peace. So he says, hey, be big hearted and let people know that you are big hearted. Love people, serve them, seek their interests, not your own. Pursue their joy and not yours. And you'll actually find joy as you do that. Sadly, the more we do the opposite, the more we seek and obsess over our own interests, well, the more anxious we actually become, which takes us to point number two, peace through prayer. Look at verse six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Stop. So here's the second of the two seemingly impossible commands. Rejoice always, worry Never. Christian, you are commanded by God's word to not be anxious about anything. Let's define it first. Uh, Definitions can be disarming. What is anxiety and worry? Well, ultimately, both of them are a form of fear. It's a form of fear. Our English word, worry, comes from an old English word that meant to to strangle. Isn't that a perfect picture, a word picture of worry? If you take that and combine it with the Greek word that we have translated anxious here, it's a word which literally means to be to be pulled apart, to be pulled in many different directions. We now have a pretty effective word picture of worry. It is to somehow feel both strangled and pulled apart in many directions at the same time. In fact, it's the feeling of being pulled apart in many directions that has this strangling effect. But why? Why does anxiety strangle and pull us apart? What is it about worry that has this effect? And again, it's fear. And fear is always our response to a threat. Or in the case of worry and anxiety, at least fear is our response to the perception of a threat. Fear tells us that something or someone we love or value is in danger. Or that we are in danger. So anxiety is fear. It's, it's hyper-concern. Now, don't hear me wrong. Concern is good. Concern is normal. I should have concern for the health and well-being of my children. I should care about the state of my relationships and my finances. But that's not what we're talking about here. Worry and anxiety are care and concern gone wild. It is an oppressive fear of the future. And most of your fear falls into one of three categories. It is either money, people, or death. Those are generally the three categories of things that we fear. Money, not having enough, people, relational failure and rejection, and death, the great unknown. And it's important to be able to know and name what it is that you fear because your worry, it speaks. It's it's communicating to you. If you can look at it and examine it and trace it and track it, it will tell you a whole lot about yourself. 
because your worries reveal your loves. Right? Your worries reveal your loves. What you are most anxious for tends to tell you what you are most living for. Listen, I'm not kept awake at night worrying about money. I'm just not. Most of that is because you guys so generally care and provide for us that I don't have to. Uh, that's good. But it's also that, I, honestly, I just don't care as much about money. Right? I'm not tracking the stock market the every day. I don't have any money in it, uh, so I'm not keeping up with that. I'm not worried about having enough saved up for retirement. I'm not worried about my financial future. I can feel some of you saying maybe you should be more worried about some of those things. Um, maybe you're right. Again, I, I know what you mean. Uh, but my point is that it's not something I super value, so I don't spend a ton of time and energy worrying about money. But I am kept awake at night worrying about people, about the church, about my preaching. Sometimes in good and healthy concern and care ways, but sometimes not. Right? Sometimes in the sinful worry and anxiety way. Why is that? Well, because it's I care too much about what people think of me, right? I'm a, I'm a people pleaser, right? I care about my image. I care about being seen as intelligent. I tend to find my identity somewhat in my preaching. I love myself, and so I want others to love and praise myself. So I can get sinfully anxious and worry about people. For whatever reason, I don't struggle as much with the categories of money and death fear, but I do struggle with the category of people fear. And if I can examine that worry and anxiety and step back from it and read it through the lens of Scripture, well, I can learn a lot about my heart. This is telling me about the things that I love. This is revealing to me some of my idols. What you fear, what you worry about can tell you what you love. So what is that for you? What do you fear? What do you worry about? What is that revealing to you about your loves and priorities and your values? Paul here is telling us to fear nothing, to not be anxious about anything. And it seems crazy. And he knows that. So he tells us, and Scripture is so kind, it doesn't just tell us what to do. It often tells us how to do it as well. And that's what we see here. Do not be anxious about anything important word, but then it is paralleled in the second phrase with, but in everything, not anything, worry, but in everything, prayer. He says prayer is the solution to your anxieties. How? Well, consider another spot where this same word is used. 1 Peter 5, 7. You may know 1 Peter 5, 7, where we're told by Peter, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I love that. Let's, let's run with that. Prayer is a casting. That word means it's a, it's a throwing off or a laying down. It's actually the same word that's used when Judas is disgusted with himself and takes the silver and throws it back down on the ground. This is that same word, a, a throwing uh, down. Peter is telling you to take all of that which is strangling you and throw it on the Lord. So it's as if your anxiety is a burden. And you know it feels like that. It can feel like a weight that you are carrying, a weight that is crushing you. And prayer is the process of unloading that burden. It is the casting of that burden on the Lord. And if you've ever had to carry a heavy burden for a long time, and literally, I mean literally, like a physical weight, you know that it, it consumes everything. It consumes your focus and attention and the weight and the size of the burden determines how oppressively consuming it is. I recently helped with two different moves, two very different moves. Uh, Jeremy and Peter moved a few months ago, just like two blocks from here, uh, here I guess. Uh, the apartment's above the H Mart. It's actually above the liquor store, but you're not supposed to say liquor store in this sermon. Um, but for their move, right, they had to park on the street, they had to walk all the way in, back around, and then up three flights of steps into the apartment. This is really kind of long, out of the way, it was far away. But that move was a super easy move. Why? Well, because they're single grad students in their 20s, and they don't have any stuff. Um, and the stuff that they do have, no offense, is just kind of smaller. It's just stuff. And so it was an easy move. It's all light. So it's this long distance to carry the stuff, but the burden wasn't heavy. So you're carrying things, but you're not thinking about it. You're thinking, you're chatting, you're planning, you're doing other things as well while carrying these light 
burdens. But then there was the Murrays. Then there was the Murrays move. They also moved, and it was just upstairs. Just a first, first floor apartment, like 10 feet away, uh, directly above. Nice, short distance. But man, that was a different move. Why? Well, it's because Mike has furniture that, though it looks like wood, is apparently lead that is painted. <laughs> it's just painted to look like wood. Uh, so there was this one particular piece. Was it a desk? What was that one? It was a desk. We're trying to get it up the steps. I think it was a desk. And we get stuck. And I'm at the bottom. I'm against the wall. I'm actively being crushed by this giant weight of an unbearable burden. And so think about it. Like, if you've been in that situation, you've had a big, heady burden. At that moment, pain, sweating, just trying to not drop it as the pastor, trying to make sure and not say the things that are starting to swirl. Right At that moment, you're not thinking about anything else. There's usually a sermon occupying my mind that stresses me out. There's usually an upcoming conversation that I'm, I'm thinking about. Uh, none of the other things that my mind is generally set on is set on anything else except this oppressively heavy burden. If you ever, if you ever watch on Google just the guys that do like the, chant, the Olympic record-breaking deadlifting, right, the focus and the attention that goes into picking up that amount of weight. They are not thinking about anything else. I, every deadlift on the heavy part, I'm praying, Lord, don't let me hurt myself. Don't let me hurt myself. And then you are focused on the burden. That's kind of what your anxieties are and do. They are this great, big, overwhelming burden that arrests your attention and demands your time and your focus and your energy, right? That big thing that you fear becomes the only thing that you can see and thus it crowds out and blocks everything else. It is a burden. And the bearing of that burden, which is taking all of that focus and attention, is thus then an obstacle to both joy and peace. Because your focus is now only here on this thing. If as we're seeing, joy is found in Jesus, and as we looked at last week, in thinking on Jesus, in setting our minds on the things that are above, then anxiety is so deadly because it, as a heavy burden, becomes the thing that our mind is set on instead. It is what occupies us and consumes us. It thus takes away our focus, our joy-giving focus on the Lord. This is why you so desperately need prayer. Prayer as the casting off of anxieties. The burden that you bear. Prayer is the unburdening of heart. It's taking that thing, all your anxieties, and casting it on the Lord. That's why it's don't be anxious, don't bear that burden. How? By giving it to the Lord through prayer. Listen, that's what prayer is. Prayer, if you want to be simple, prayer is talking to God. I've seen a couple of spots recently that have kind of frowned upon that definition of prayer. So I was encouraged when I went back and saw some of the old super holy dead guys define prayer in the same way. We're heading to Scotland in three weeks, so I'm starting to pick up and read all things Scottish. I always read in preparation for where I'm going. So I've been reading about John Knox. John Knox, awesome beard as November goes. Um, the, he's the man that brought the Reformation to Scotland. Here's his definition of prayer almost 500 years ago. He says, prayer is an earnest and familiar talking with God to whom we declare our miseries, whose support and help we implore and desire in our adversities, and whom we laud and praise for our benefits received. Just a hundred years later, uh, straight south down in England, another John, John Bunyan, defines prayer this way. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God. Through Christ, in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit, for such things as God has promised, or according to His Word, for the good of the church, with submission in faith to the will of God. So, prayer is talking to God, and then Bunyan says this talking to God is a, a pouring out of your heart to God. And in so doing, it is a casting all your anxieties on Him. Don't worry, not just don't worry. This actually makes a lot of sense, because if you think about it, prayer and worry share a lot in common. 
We talked last week about the importance of, of talking to yourself instead of listening to yourself. Okay, we'll come back to that next week as we look at some of the more practicalities of meditation and prayer from verse 8. But think about worry in terms of listening to yourself. Right? Your mind is set on some sort of upcoming thing, and as a burden, it starts to dominate your attention and your focus, and so you begin to rehearse it over and over and over again. You run through all the options and potentialities. This could happen, or this could happen. It's actually a type of meditation, and I am the king of this type of meditation, of, of worrying about some upcoming sermon or meeting or conversation, right? something that has the potential to be awkward or difficult or hard. And so what do I do? I think about it again and again and again. And again, I meditate on it. And not just the facts of whatever this upcoming thing is, but then my imagination jumps in to build some sort of possible story around these facts. Well, if I do this, then this will probably happen. If I say this thing, then they'll probably say this, and then this will happen. And it kind of can some start off slowly and reasonably, but then it can start to spiral. But then maybe they'll, they'll punch me, and then the whole church will get involved, and then they'll fire me, and then I'll lose the parsonage. And since I have no other employable skills, I'll be homeless, and my kids will be on the streets and all know what are we going to do, right? Have you done that with an upcoming conversation that all of a sudden becomes the end of your entire life as you just kind of trace this anxiety and it builds and builds and explodes? Again, you think that's crazy, but you've, you've done it. You've done the same thing as you fearfully and obsessively meditate on the future with your worry. Listen, prayer is actually somewhat similar but it's done in an entirely different direction and with a different focus. Anxiety is worry selfward. Well, prayer, you could just say, is worry Godward. Right? In prayer, we are doing much of the same thing, the thinking, the rehearsing, the meditating, but we are now all in faith directing it towards him. Prayer, in a sense, is worrying at God. Luther used to say, pray and let God worry. Pray and let God Worry. And remember last week what we were thinking of, right? the, the absolute sovereignty of this God that we are speaking to. He's in control and he's good. He's already planned it all out and he's already promised you that it will work out for your good ultimately. So trust him. Bring all your cares and anxieties to him in prayer. Talk to him. If you think about it, the, the longest book in our Bible are the Psalms and the Psalms are all Prayers to God. The, the basic message of the longest book of the Bible is simply talk to God. Cry out to him in all circumstances. Because we just read in 1 Peter 5, 7, he cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. He's sovereign and he's good. He's in control and he cares. So take all of that worry, much of it the fear of uncertainty. Well, hey, praise God. There is no uncertainty in God. Much of it is your fear of a lack of control. Well, hey, praise God. God is absolutely in control of all things. So trust him. I love, uh, we read Matthew 6, but I love Luke's version of it. In Luke 12, verse 32, how he ends it there. And Jesus ends this whole kind of worry section by saying, fear not, little flock. That's so kind. That's so he's, he's kind. Little flock, sheep. Uh, children that I love and care about. He says, fear not, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hey, we're worried about a couple bucks when God is giving us a kingdom. Or we're worried about the next couple days or, or even a couple years when God is guaranteeing our eternity. And this is his good pleasure. He's so kind and he's so compassionate. Fear not, children that I love. God takes pleasure in caring for you, in giving you what you need. So, so trust him. That future that you're worried about, well, he's, he's got it in his hands. And not only that, this future that you're worried about, in some sense, he's, he's there. So cast it all on him. He already knows. So talk to him and pray. We're not going to do a ton of the kind of the specifics right now. Maybe we'll do some of that next week. But also, sometimes I think the specifics don't help so much. 
Sometimes we're given some sort of formula that we're supposed to follow, and it can all become very rigid and formulaic. But as Bunyan said, prayer is simply pouring out your heart to God. So do that. That's, that's what you're called to do. Everything that is on your mind. The Psalms give you great liberty and great freedom to pour all of it out before the Lord. They pull no punches. There's no whitewashing. There's no hiding some of the uncomfortable things in the psalm. They pour it all out um, humbly uh, and honestly before the Lord. Pour out your heart and talk to him. But the one practical tip I will give you that I find so helpful, the one thing that you most need beside the Holy Spirit, obviously, well, it's it's the Psalms specifically, or the Word in general. I know what you all do when you start to pray. We all struggle with this, right? Your mind starts to wander, and you can't even focus, and then you feel guilty about focus, and now you're anxious about the lack of the focus, and then so you try to pray again, and it happens again, and then you just give up. Sometimes some of that is a problem of method. And so I have found that when I struggle to pray or keep my mind focused on the Lord or what it is that I'm supposed to be praying for is to go to the Psalms. If you don't know how to pray, first get help uh, from an older or wiser, more mature, godly brother or sister. Get help. Come talk to me or Mike or anyone in here. Um, But what you should do by yourself is you should go to the Psalms. You can start off by just praying them exactly as they are written. They're prayers. And then you can start to expand upon them as you take them um, for, for an outline, right? And then start to kind of flesh them out and fill them in with your own specific requests and petitions, all right? So the Lord is my shepherd. How do I now engage with the Lord as my shepherd and praise him for protecting me and guiding me and leading him? And Father, thank you for all of these things that you're doing. But my mind is now fixed on his word, which is always better than my words, and it's guiding me and directing me. Okay, next posi- petition, I can pray about uh, this thing I shall not want. Oh, Lord, uh, how much do I struggle uh, to not want? Help me to believe um, that you provide and that you care and that I need nothing apart from you. So what I'm doing is I'm trying in my distracted, wandering brain is to give myself something to fix and focus it on. And instead of some sort of here's this thing, you got to follow this, it's just God's word. Here's God's word. Read it. Think on it next week and then pray according to it, fleshing it out with your own prayers. Guys, it's a wonderful thing that God has given us prayers. (laughs) The apostles themselves say, uh, Lord, help us. Teach us how to pray. Uh, He gives them the Lord's Prayer, which we'll get to in a little bit in Sunday school. But then he gives us this. This 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 teaches you how to pray. So use the Psalms. Pray according to God's word. So don't worry, Paul says. Instead, pray. And what will be the result of all of this? Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace is the result of prayer. An inexplicable, incomprehensible peace. Instead of fear, peace. Instead of inner turmoil, of anxiety, the inner calm of peace. Remember, peace doesn't just mean uh, the absence of conflict, but it means the presence of completeness, of wholeness. It It is rest. Remember, our definition of joy has been gospel gladness, the the gladness that results from the conviction that all is well. Or maybe peace, then, is the experience that all is well, and then joy is the gladness that results from that experience. And notice that even more beautiful, the verb is so much better. It's not you will just have peace. It's that you will be guarded by peace. It will protect you. Uh, that word's got to come from Paul. Right? He, think about it. He's, he's literally chained to a guard at all times. This guard is guarding him at all times, at every morning, at every evening, no matter what he's doing, he's being guarded. And he takes that word and said, this peace will guard you and protect you and watch you and keep you, your heart and your mind, always. Worry always leads to chaos. Um, prayer, by the grace of God, can lead to calm. Prayer produces peace. How? 
So how? Let's, we've got to figure that out. Because if prayer is talking to God, how does talking to God produce peace? Well, yes, it is this unloading of the burden that is distracting you from that uh, peace. That's, that's good. That's important. As you take that off and cast it on him, there will be more peace. But there's more to prayer than just talking to God. Two more quick definitions. I'm just reading a bunch of old guys on prayer uh, this week. Here's Charles Hodge. He says that prayer is the converse of the soul with God. I like that. That's a good transition because converse, conversation, still talking, uh, communicating, but it's maybe telling us a little bit more. And then we get, of course, to Calvin. How does he define prayer in the Institutes? He says that prayer is the communion of men with God. He says that talking to God is communing with God. Because obviously, communication is fundamental to relationship. And so as we talk to God, we are also communing with God. And this is the answer to the question of how prayer produces peace. And it's point number three. Let's move on to point number three. Because it's ultimately only Christ that produces peace. Peace. And don't don't miss this. Look at all the wonderful prepositions just in the beginning of chapter four. Look how Paul explicitly roots everything in Christ. Four one, stand firm in the Lord. Four two, agree in the Lord. Four four, rejoice in the Lord. Four seven, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Boldness, unity, joy, peace, all of it. Paul connects directly to Christ. All of it comes only through Christ. You will find no peace apart from Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ himself is peace. Ephesians 1.14, right? He himself is our peace. Isaiah 9.6, hundreds of years before Jesus is even born, he tells us that this one that is to come will be called the Prince of Peace. Luke 4, when this one promise does finally come and Simeon finally uh, sees Jesus and holds him, he says, now I can depart in peace. Why? He says, because my eyes have seen your salvation. What have his eyes seen? His eyes have seen Jesus. Jesus is God's salvation. Jesus is your salvation. Peace is salvation. Jesus is salvation. Therefore, Jesus is peace. And so ultimately, it is a person that is the solution to your anxiety. Yes, it is prayer. But it is prayer that, that connects us to a person. Right? The person. It's about relationship with him, about communing with him. Prayer brings us into the very presence of God. He is near, he is at hand, and he speaks to us through his word. We think on those things and meditate on his words, letting them infuse our whole person, affect our entire lives, and then we speak back to him in prayer. And so ultimately, it's not prayer itself that solves our worry problem. Prayer is simply the means. Prayer is the, the straw through which we drink the cold, refreshing, life-giving water of God himself. He is the solution to our anxiety. Have you ever been all just worked up and stressed out, and then all of a sudden someone comes into your presence who is just super calm and collected, and then that just kind of rubs off on you and has that effect on you, right there, their calm and their security and all that just kind of helps ease your anxiety and your worry. You have the Prince of Peace and through prayer access to him, to him being with you. And so cheat ahead and peek down and look at verse nine of chapter four. In our passage, verse seven, it's the peace of God that guards us. But two verses later, Paul flips the script just to be clear, just to make sure we don't think of this peace as some sort of vague, undefined, all we are saying is give peace a chance thing. No, in 4.9, he says, not the peace of God, but the God of peace will be with you. And that's the solution to your anxiety. God is with you. He is near. I hope you are getting a little anxious and concerned about the end of verse 5. Right? I hope you noticed 
that I skipped the end of verse 5. And I hope you are desperately hoping that we are going to get back to the end of verse 5. Because this is so important. This is the key. The Lord is at hand. He's near. He's here. Matthew 28, 20. The very last verse of the entire book. The last words that Matthew and thus the Holy Spirit through Matthew wanted to leave with you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 23, 4, I won't fear anything. Why not? For you are with me. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. And God is present with his people always. Whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, if you are a Christian, as we have been seeing, Paul doesn't call you a Christian. He never does that. He calls you a saint who is in Christ. That is your place. That is your location. You are in him. You cannot get any more near than that. And not only that, he is in you. Colossians 1:27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, you are in the one who is peace, and the one who is peace is in you. He's near. And so as we'll see next week, this starts first with, with knowing that he is near. It starts with you intentionally taking steps to regularly remind yourself that if you are in Christ, then this is true for you. He is near. And then learning to rejoice in the fact that this is true for you, regardless of how well you are doing or how holy you are feeling or how successfully you are rejoicing in the Lord always and not worrying ever. Because this objective nearness does not change. It is safe and secure in Christ as you are safe and secure in Christ. God is near. Think about these things. And then seek to be more aware of his subjective nearness. And how? Well, we've already seen it. Pray. Start by asking him. Help is one of the most important and best prayers that you will ever pray. You should pray that many times a day, every day. Help. Help me, Lord. I do not know what to do in this situation. I do not know what to do with my child. I do not know how to help this person. Help me, Lord. Ask him in terms of the book of Philippians. Ask him to fill you with this joy that we've been talking about for almost eight months. This gladness for his grace. This gladness that he is with you and that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And then pursue him with all that you have. Again, how? Through the ordinary means of grace. I love that they're called the ordinary means of grace because we hate that word today. Nobody likes ordinary today. But we talk about relationship with the Lord and of course, fundamental to that is communication. So you listen to him with this. Right? this he is speaking. This is, it says it's living and active. Right? He speaks through his word and then speak back and pray. That is how you uh, relate to him. Always asking for the spirit to help, uh, to help you have this conviction and know that all is well and the gladness that God is near and that you are safe and secure in him regardless of how chaotic and crazy the circumstances around you may seem. So Christian, don't worry. Ultimately, in Christ, you have nothing to worry about. We know that's true. Ultimately, in Christ, we have nothing to worry about. But, get side note, as we close, close let's, let's also be clear that he is saying this only to Christians. Right? 1-1, one, one, uh, Paul writes this whole thing to saints who are in Christ Jesus. 4-4, four, four, he has said, therefore, my brothers. Therefore, if you are not Paul's brother, meaning brother or sister in Christ, if you are not a Christian, let's be clear, Paul is not telling you to be anxious about nothing. No, it's the exact opposite, actually. You very much have something to be very anxious about. Because Romans tells us that we are, all of us, sinners. And that the God who is perfectly righteous and holy and good must hate evil and sin and wickedness. And so your sin separates you from the God who is peace. Your sin puts you in conflict with the God of peace. And the wages of that sin, Paul says, is death and hell. 
So before you can be concerned about the peace of God, you need to be concerned about peace with God. And it is only in Christ Jesus that you can find that peace. And he so graciously and kindly tells you what to do. He says, repent and believe. He says, for all who are not in him already come to me. Turn away uh, from that sin. Lay it aside. Cast it down. Turn away from it and turn to him. Repent and believe. So before casting all your anxiety on him, cast all your sin on him and be saved. And if none of that made any sense, and if you have questions about that, man, please come find me or Mike afterwards and talk uh, to one of us. Because we all want peace. And Paul is telling us very clearly that it is only found in and through Jesus Christ. And so he says to all of us, he says, come, come to me in faith. Uh, come to me in prayer, knowing that he is near, knowing that he cares. Don't be anxious about anything, but pray. Practice talking to God and resting in the God who is peace. Let's do that right now together. And let's go before him in prayer. If you would bow with me. Father, we thank you that you ask us and you tell us and you want us to pray. Every single one of us struggles with prayer. Give us a great desire to be with you through your word, to speak back to you through prayer. Teach us what it means to cast all our anxieties on you. Give us a great holy and humble boldness that we can come before you because of Christ, that you desire us to come before you in prayer because of Christ. And I pray that you would help us see the great privilege of prayer. Father, change our hearts. Forgive us for how much easier it is to play on our phones than it is to come before you in prayer. Father, help us. Help us to pray. Teach us to pray. Help us to be an encouragement to one another to pray. I pray that you would instill inside each of us personally, but inside this church corporately, a great hunger for you and a great passion for prayer. I pray that our great confidence in your sovereignty will be what would lead us to pray and to come to you knowing and trusting that you care and that you're in control. Father, help us, Lord. I pray that we would be both convicted of our prayerlessness and then, Father, both and so much more encouraged and comforted by your faithfulness and by your mercy and by your kindness. We thank you that you know our hearts and that you know our struggles. And you still send your son to rescue us. We thank you that he has paid for all the sin, including the sin of prayerlessness, including the sin of anxiousness. Father, use the knowledge of that to give us great joy and use that joy to drive us to Jesus. Father, help us now, we ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.